Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy, Managing Director of Midstream Strategy at East Daily Capital. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome to the PetroNerds podcast. I am your ho- your host, Trisha Curtis, and I am the CEO of PetroNerds, and this is... Axel. Axel, <laughs> yeah. I'm Ethan Bellamy. I'm with East Daily Capital, and uh, we do the midstream. So I'm going to dive in with some market stats first, and then we'll talk about global oil macro, which is Trisha's baby. So Trisha, super bullish week on a surprise. Uh, Saudi production cut. WTRI rose 7.3%, 52 bucks. Brent was up to just under $56. The February NYMEX contract for natural gas ended up 6.5%, 271. The S&P oil and gas exploration and production index, that's the XOP, up 12% on the week. It's a little higher beta than oil in the midstream. Kendra Morgan announced full service of the Permian Highway, which is great for Permian producers. That's a 2.1 BCF a day line. Uh, they traded up 5%. Enterprise was up 8.4% on the week, so a little bit more than WTI. Uh, on nothing, really more than a 1.1% distribution increase, which is steady as she goes. Uh, oil field services names were up the biggest, highest beta on oil. Liberty was up 18%. They closed the uh, acquisition from Slumberjay. Aventive up 18%. And the name goes, names go on in terms of double-digit moves. In short, it was a pretty powerful week. The market was surprised by the Saudi production cut. I know you have some thoughts on that. Fire away. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on it. So the market was absolutely surprised by the Saudi production cut. I think um, mainly because they it was called this gift to the it was called this gift to the market. And I think the biggest surprise was that we went into this meeting and the Russians and Kazakhstan and Russia had both said that they want to cut output, or uh, I'm sorry, that they want to increase output. Both of them said that they would like to increase it. And then we had the uh, a little bit of hesitancy with the market, everybody kind of wait and see. And then the Saudis just come out and said, oh, hey, we didn't tell anybody, but we're going to cut a million barrels a day. And that million barrel day cut, I think is, um, one, it's a pretty lofty number. It's not like they said, we'll just, and they, they did it voluntarily and they did it on their own. Um, and I think the biggest thing that the market's missing right now is the reasoning why you know, why would the Russians want to increase output? Why would the Saudis want to decrease output when they're both looking at the same market? Uh, and the fact that we had such a response by the market to it. So, it, I mean, Brent was already holding up pretty nicely. So I think the Russians were looking at this and thinking like, but let's increase production a little bit because we can. And the Saudis were obviously looking at the market and saying, holy crap, what if this, the virus gets really bad? The vaccine roll, it doesn't happen quickly enough. And they see the softness. And I think you see this, um, what we saw is this reality of how important $50 Brent is to the Saudis. And I don't think that they were trying to go for 55. I don't think the goal was to really push prices, you know, towards 60. Um, I think the Russians probably don't 
they're probably getting anxious right now that Brent is pushing north of 55 and the Saudis are just happy they're everything's holding steady because essentially if they go through with this cut and obviously the market, uh, we're probably seeing a bit of trading froth right now on it, right? You know, it's five bucks. It's sort of added on top without the cuts actually in place. But I think the Saudis are, are nervous that things will not uh, bear out in the first quarter the way everyone thinks they will. Okay. In terms of demand. All right. So let's talk about the three big behemoths in the market. You got the U.S., the Saudis, and the Russians. The Russians are long ducks. They're basically doing okay at 50 bucks economically. They'd be happy to take 60 Their concern is making revenue. The Saudis, if I understand your position, are worried about short-term softness, but also don't want prices to rally too hard long-term because they don't want to destroy demand. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah. I I mean, I think we have to think about like $50 oil being this magic number and what it means for each one of these countries. So the US, the Russians and the Saudis. And and remember, and we've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but remember that in 2018, the level of production that US, Russia and Saudi were all producing above north of 11 million barrels per day in November 2018. So if we think about now and we think about where everybody's at and what does that $50 number mean, the Russians break even at $42 Ural, like the Ural price, the local price is 42 bucks for their breaking, which means their, their fiscal budget is breaking even. So they're doing better from a fiscal situation. If you actually look at their revenue, if you look at their, um, their foreign reserves and what they have in stock, it's, they've more than they've actually increased, um, as opposed to decreasing like the Saudis, the Saudis, on the other hand, actually have, I mean, they went through this massive pain in April and May, like everybody else. And over the spring decreased their foreign reserves considerably and actually increased their, they actually have considerable inflation right now, which is not good when your economy is struggling. And that's because they increased their VAT tax or their value added tax massively to increase their revenues. So if you actually look at their revenues right now, the Saudis will say, hey, we're actually making more money from non-oil than we are from oil because they increased this value added tax so much. So they have massive inflation and pretty low oil prices. So when you think about what the Saudis just did, they, they need it. They cannot afford to, they can't let uh, afford to have prices slip below 50. So it's, I think it's a bit, when we see what they did in the market and what, how this Russians reacted, it's literally just, um, the Russians being a little bit more optimistic about the near term and the, the Saudis being a little more pessimistic about the near term and the way they approach it. And the Russians don't need that buffer. And I think the Russians are genuinely have the flexibility to be a little bit more concerned about peak demand and what higher oil prices do to demand. And honestly, they should, I think the concern now should be, do the Russians really realize how much, or do the Saudis really realize how much supply could come online globally when Brent prices are around 55 bucks or pushing 60 and how much, I mean, and how resilient your shale is going to be at 50. And I think even our mark, our, our analysts in the U S and folks are pretty pessimistic, honestly, on, on U S shale producers. I post some things on LinkedIn and the reaction was a little um, interesting on, on what folks responded, but I think $50 oil is a great spot for U.S. shale. And it just doesn't seem like the rest of the world is is fully understanding that. So you talked about, before we get into the U.S., let's talk some more about what the other super majors are doing and saying. So I know one topic of interest was E&I basically saying they were going to take their their hurdle rate from new projects down to, down from a range of 50 to 55 down to things that need to work at 40 bucks. What does that say to you about global CapEx? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it should tell the industry and it should tell analysts and folks that, that this, this industry is really resilient and that 
what what people used to always say is that you know the cure for for low oil prices is low oil prices and that's just not true anymore that the um low oil prices actually are are have have actually shown us in the past several years that it makes the industry a little more resilient. Doesn't mean it's not painful, doesn't mean that people don't lose money or the investors lose money, but the fact that ENI, which is a major Italian oil company and major European player, the fact that they have, you know, pushed into the green sector that they are trying to diversify, that they're getting very gassy, and the fact that they've come out and said how COVID had sort of wrecked their world and basically saw that 50 and $55 oil prices is no longer a low enough threshold to bank on business. And now they have to lower their break-evens to the low 40s is really telling. And we saw that happen. I mean, this is the piece that I think a lot of folks miss is that when shale upended the entire global oil market, we did see this happen. And this is the second sort of wave. This wasn't shale necessarily, but this is this is a child of shale of these lower break evens. When when prices collapsed in 2014 and everybody focused on break evens, they were competing with shale in their portfolio, and it had all these you know Stat Oil, which is um, now Equinor, and all these major European oil companies talking about break evens, and it was all because of U.S. shale, and it, they lowered their break evens for um, for their stuff offshore massively. I mean, it used to you couldn't you couldn't produce an offshore barrel, you know, south of 60. And now you can do it at much, much lower break-evens because they changed the whole nature and dynamic. And so if ENI even gets close to being break-even at 40, that's impressive. That means that their portfolio is going to be very resilient. And it means that when we think about peak demand and we think about, you know, supply, it means that supply is going to be very resilient and it's going to be pretty hard to bucket, you know, and to push that, push, push that down much further. All right. Well, let's keep going on some other super major activity. And the international spectrum. So is Rosneft going to basically just do the dirty work for BP? Or <laughs> is, is is Rosneft going into the Arctic and going full bore into oil exploration and production uh, going to force BP to divest that stake? Yeah, it's a great, um, it's it's kind of timely because I think BP, if you're following, you know, if you're following the peak demand topics and you're you're following the oil market at all, you're, you have to look at what BP is doing. And so BP has been pretty open and outspoken about how they're trying to get greener and pushing for massive uh, reductions in emissions, et cetera, by certain dates. And obviously we'll get into their, some of their peak demand numbers later, but they, they have a big stake in, in Rosneft. So Rosneft is looks like they're going to go ahead into the Arctic. And I think it's actually, it's really just telling about the global oil market industry on how, you know, regardless of what the U.S. decides to do in production and to try to curb emissions or whatever those agendas might be, and regardless of what the EU wants to do and and what Europe wants to do, the Middle East and Russia are going to continue to produce oil, not just now, but for a very, very long term because it is how they make money. And they're going to continue to probably do it at lower price points that will, that, folks didn't think would work previously that I think historically we would have said, oh, they'll push into renewables because they're just not going to make money. And the reality is, no, they're just going to produce more oil and they're going to make it work for them. And and the fact that, you know, the Russians are even toying with the idea of the Arctic um, it, right now and thinking about it is that it's an important thing to recognize that they're going to push into it. And they have so much shale. I mean, if sanctions were ever to be lifted, the ability for them to maneuver on shale is huge. And like you mentioned before, they they are sort of acting more like a U.S. and flexible player right now with the building out of their ducks. I mean, it just seems like they're getting uh the Russians are very resilient, but I think they have a far more um, resilient and and relatively sophisticated approach on how they they a n- more nimble approach on how they produce crude oil. All right, well, let's keep going into the BP projections, which I find fascinating. How the market is misusing what BP has in its annual forecast, 
Um, so maybe you want to talk more about that. Yeah. I mean, we've touched base. We've talked about this a little bit on these, these demand forecasts and peak demand. And I think BP, you know, startled the market in was, I believe it was October that they came out with their, you know, they had their energy week and they basically, you know, Spencer Dale, who's the chief economist of BP and used to be at the bank of England is, uh, basically put out this very notable projection, which had, oil demand actually peaking in 2019. So basically saying that we've already hit peak demand. So we're, we're at peaked demand um, and that it's basically going to plateau and then decline and then had all these very aggressive scenarios for, for it to decline. But interestingly, if you listen to a podcast that Spencer Dale just did with Jason Bordoff um, at Columbia University, he explains really clearly what these projections are meant to be and how it's not one that they're all going to be wrong because anybody that's in this business, if you've tried to forecast stuff, we are definitely going to be wrong. Um, but two, that it's not meant to be a forecast of reality. It's meant for, um, it's tools that BP uses basically to say, what's the reality that they have to work in. So I think it's more thinking about it as a politically aggressive scenarios in which they sort of have to live in, in order for them to make money. It doesn't mean that they will pan out. The problem with that is that, and BP knows this and Spencer Dale knows this, and I, I think it's okay to call them out on it, is that you know how your forecast is going to be interpreted. You know that every Wall Street Journal and Financial Times and everyone's going to take that and they're going to say, this is what BP thinks the market's doing. And you should be out in front of that and clarifying, yes, we do or no, we don't. And by the way, you're still an oil company. You're still producing oil. So, you know, that's important to clarify that. And IEA sort of piggybacked on that and they don't, they're not quite as aggressive, but the point is neither of them basically see that there's any upside or show that there's any upside in oil demand. And that's just kind of a giving the world a, a false sense of reality because these are projections that are not actually what they may believe will happen, but what they need to happen in order to make money in those worlds. And that's very different than saying what's actually going to happen or what's the likely scenarios. And one likely scenario is that, which IEA does not put in there, is that people buck the trends or, or energy prices rise and people get angry and they don't want to. I mean, energy prices rise and could curb demand, but people also might push back on some of these um, on some of these measures saying that they don't want, you know, electricity prices to increase um, and they may like low oil prices. And so they want that that consumption. So if you don't have massive adoption of EVs super, super quickly, a really cheap, you know, really cheap electric vehicles, really cheap battery uh, technology and massive uptake. I mean, there's some real headwinds to both of these forecasts. Well, I guess we'll see. One of the interesting phenomena this week was we had Asian LNG cargoes trading above $30 in MMBTU, which is extraordinary. Um, apparently, it's uh, it, a, a decade, multiple decade uh, low uh, temperatures in Beijing and Asia, which is uh, U.S. feed gas on LNG is now at 11 BCF a day, yep. and we're exporting like crazy. So it's all fun and games until somebody really wants to drive or really wants to stay warm in the winter. So. Yeah, and we're seeing—I mean—we're seeing massive increases in in LNG prices in Europe as well. I mean, so our LNG—how much are we actually exporting right now? Uh, feed gas is 11 BCF a day, um, but the facilities in the U.S. are running flat out. So yeah, that's incredible. And in the short term, it's interesting because there's—I don't think there are any projects coming online, new liquefaction projects coming online in 21. So. From a, from an annual basis, the supply is, is effectively completely inelastic. So what you see is what you get on the supply side. So, you know, heating demand is driving LNG full bore. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if uh, 
you know, U.S. prices still look very competitive. So, you know, I think on balance, it's likely we see those facilities run run at full capacity for the rest of the year, which is obviously good for the U.S. gas market. Yeah, it's great. And I think that's what I think a lot of analysts and folks within in the industry and outside the industry looking at this are very bullish on. We've talked about this before on natural gas. Uh, and this is why we're seeing companies like Liberty and companies like EOG and others sort of you know, say we're, we're willing to go into these plays and make it work. And I think that it also is very telling, I think, from the global market standpoint, the fact that these, one, we're exporting at the rate that we're exporting um, at when the virus is surging, but the fact that this gas is needed and also that Asia is calling for it. And it's really important, I think, actually for the policy agenda for this new administration to realize is that under the Obama administration, um, natural gas was sort of opened up and let loose, is that they... There were some permitting issues for some LNG facilities, uh, but uh, they were they still let it go. And we used uh, natural gas as basically a, a geopolitical tool, and we sort of were pushing this around the world. And we did help drop global you know spot prices for for natural gas as well by doing this. And I think it's really telling to see how much gas we're exporting and how much is going into Asia. And that you know just like the comments I made on the Arctic, if we are not sending that gas to Asia, um, Russia is going to be sending that gas to Asia. So it's not as though Asia is not going to consume it. And I do think it's We've spent, I don't know how much of you, if you speak to companies like Chenier or Tellurian and you um, talk to them about like how much work they've had to do with the guys that they're exporting to over the years, we don't hear about it and see it on the day to days, but just convincing these Asian guys that, you know, these Asian partners that we have the natural gas and we're going to supply it for a long time and it is a reliable source and you don't have to worry about it. And because shale was so new, they just didn't, and they had high decline rates, they didn't necessarily believe it. And, you know, we've had to, you know, really explain very, you know, carefully of like, no, we have all this natural gas and we're producing it. And I think policy and politics have, could get in the way of that if it was, if we were to curtail production anyway. So talking about exogenous variables that might curtail resource and production, one of those could be a different approach by a new administration to, for example, federal lands. So in terms of U.S. shale's productive capacity, is there enough private onshore U.S. resource to meet our needs and still keep prices reasonable? if we can't frack or lease on federal land? It's it's a really good question. We've talked about it a few times. And I think it's interesting because I still, there's two different frames of thought right now. And I've talked to folks within within the oil and gas industry who seem like they just don't uh, appreciate that this could, the headwinds that are going to be faced with this incoming administration. And then Bloomberg just came out with an article a few days ago that was talking about basically saying, yep, we're going to have a fracking ban as, as though it was a given that there will be a ban on federal land on fracking. So I'm not, it's not me telling you this as though I do believe we'll have something like that, but Bloomberg is saying this is likely, you know, we're going to have this federal ban, but they circle on their maps and they show most of the production is on private land. And I think we have to be a little bit careful with that because you and I know that if it's commingled, like if you're looking at the Powder River Basin, the problem with, I mean, Samson just announced their sale in the Powder River Basin. And if you look at that, what, 215 million, that's nothing compared to what we thought, you know, what the valuations were going for in, uh, in just two years ago in 2018, because this was a huge, huge opportunity, big play. There's lots of issues within the Powder River Basin, but you know, there, was a, there was a lot of running room there. And now we're looking at this being a I mean, the, obviously the price is dropping and because in the Powder River Basin, your your private land and your federal land are sort of intermingled, that those valuations are just dropping off massively. So I think that 
production is going to have to, it will be focused hardcore on North Dakota and Texas. My worry about North Dakota, and I'd like to get into this Texas, New Mexico, just in a little bit more detail, but my worry about North Dakota is that it is such great rock and it is majority of it is private land. We do have, um, you know, we do have any lands as well. So we have Native American, uh, lands that who knows what that will look like. Um, but they, they probably will get to decide, um, what they want to do. And we'll see if there's a, if there's a rub between, um, what's happening in Washington and what's happening on the ground there. Um, but I would love to know what can we really expect? I mean, with these pipelines, what can we, what's the best case scenario and worst case scenario? Because if you're an optimist, you're going to look at this and say, okay, well, if they don't shut the Dakota access pipeline down, then we should be okay. North Dakota should be able to at least produce what it's producing and just keep going. And people will drill and complete wells and, and probably make money. But if Dakota access gets shut down, then production has to decline, right? Uh, sort of. Um, the, the short answer is there's plenty of rail capacity to pick up at a higher uh, transportation cost. Yeah, prices we, were 60 bucks or something. Yeah, we, and, and that's fine. But in terms of netbacks to producers without Dakota Access, you're in trouble. Um, it, it is the flow chart of courts, Army Corps, and what could happen and when with, with DAPL is far too detailed to go into on this podcast. It's laborious just trying to keep up with all the ways this could play out and coming up with a probability weighted estimate of what will happen is is a pretty challenging um, thing to do accordingly. Um, but I think there's a non-zero risk of something bad happening to Dabble. I don't think that that's the, the majority case. There's There's really no evidence to suggest that the pipeline is anything but positive for overall safety and transportation is operated. But... The new administration um, may have the ability to change the way the Army Corps works. Um, you know, as long as the litigation is outstanding. Uh, I mean, in whatever you think of them, Earth Justice has been incredibly effective at putting the kibosh on oil and gas pipelines and delaying things uh, on a pound for pound basis. Um, so that is a real threat as long as there's litigation. Um, you know, that's the one basin where I think that there is some some pipeline risk coming from litigation. The only other place on the large diameter pipelines where we see issues that will have been created by pipelines that were canceled. So we got Atlantic Coast Pipeline canceled out of out of uh, the Marcellus Utica. There are other projects which are stymied or or absolutely won't go Can forward. Can we just, does yeah. that, Atlantic, so Marcellus Utica, when we're talking about natural gas, and I know the Haynesville is favored one because the low break evens, because it's yes. it's just having a massive resurgence. And really, when you look at those wells, they just look stellar. They're IPing at 12,000 MCF a day. Does the Marcellus, is it falling out a little bit of favor in that regard because of the the pipeline constraints and the, just the distance getting it to the Gulf Coast? Um, not in the short term, but in two to three years, it will be the production in that basin will be maxed out because of egress capacity on natural gas pipelines. Okay. So two and, to three years. Yeah. And, and the timing, I mean, that obviously depends a lot on, um, well, it depends on two things. It depends on how uh, much stickiness there is on the Antero range, the producers of the world sticking to free cash flow positive and free cash flow break even as their bogey. So if they start to ramp production, that could, that'll get here a lot more quickly. And then we still don't have the Mountain Valley pipeline finished. Depending on how you quantify it, there's roughly 5 to 10% of the line left to construct. 
that's there's still some litigation going on there. So if we don't get MVP and production outpaces that that limit to egress from the Marcellus Utica could get here a lot sooner. And I think that would surprise people. You know, in, if some unless something major changes, and I think we're talking along the lines of, you know, we we see the Northeast trying to electrify, we see spiking wintertime prices. You know, in the past we've seen Russian LNG cargo go into Boston. Um, we see these really dirty peaking planets uh, come online during the winter, which are incredibly counterproductive. It's it's such a horrible, perverse policy outcome. Um, unless we start, I think it's still, unless we start seeing people freeze to death in the winter because they can't afford their heating bills, that we're not going to see any more egress pipeline going north, um, northeast from the Marcellus Utica. Um, so in the interim, I think there's a chance that you could see that that production be capped in the northeast. And of course, we you know we say the Arklatex region is just in prime position to take advantage of. You know, higher natural gas prices on associated gas production coming down in 2021. Also, just remind our listeners, explain that. So uh, that includes the, the greater, Hainesville, correct? yeah, most of that's the Hainesville. Okay. So the greater, the the greater region, there's there's really not much arc in the Arklatex. It and when be, you it should just be called latex. When you look at the map and you look at where the Hainesville's at, and you just say from a federal lands perspective, it's limited. So you're basically, you're straddling uh, Texas and Louisiana. So you're close to market, which is partly why it's, it's beefed up. So that's something that could maneuver around any significant federal regulations, right? Even on the midstream side, is yeah. that you could probably see further build out. Yeah. And, and look, if you, if you do need to build a pipeline, it's not activist free. I mean, the Permian highway pipeline that, that Kinder brought on today, which I actually saw, you saw Waha prices trading above Henry Hub, which was amazing because the diffs have blown out there. Um, a lot of that was weather, but nevertheless, that was pretty interesting to see. Um, they had some pushback on in the hill country on building that line. But if you said, you know, I need to go build a pipeline, Louisiana and Texas are still the place where you're most likely to get that that done. I think there's plenty of capacity in the short term. Um, you know, we've seen some infrastructure bottlenecks, but you know, basically, if you're in the Haynesville, I think you're in a great position to take advantage of global natural gas markets and the globalization of uh, the the Henry Hub spot price. Um, you know, I mean, if you, the the ARB from you know the U.S. Gulf Coast to Asia right now, oh, it's, that's it's yeah. extraordinary. I mean, and it's start from yeah. just the U.S. To, to Europe is huge right now, or at least was a uh, recently. Yeah, and a lot of that's winter, but. Um, Look, as as things proceed and, you know, I mean, the reason the U.S. has decarbonized is yep. some part in, in due credit to renewables, but largely natural gas there was a displacing coal. There was, I admittedly, I have not looked at the, the U.N. the UN study, but it was a Forbes article that was quoting or going from the U.N. study and saying that the U.S. basically doesn't need to join the Paris Climate Accords because we've done we've outpaced everyone else simply because we've just used more natural gas, which is offset coal. And now, it's now, you know, that's just propaganda from uh, the oil and gas industry in, well, a, in a pro capitalist. I mean, it was on, it was on LinkedIn <laughs> and Forbes, but I will I will chase up the U.N. article or the U.N. study so we can look at that. But I, yeah. I think I would like to pivot a little bit from this natural gas conversation into into the Permian, into the natural gas side, because. We talked about this before, but Permian oil production has not recovered from its pre-COVID because it was we we're pushing. I mean, we we're 
the ma- massive volumes of crude oil being pushed out of the Permian Basin pre-COVID. On the actual 17 BCF a day, we declined from that, but we've ratcheted that back up massively. So the actual production of natural gas out of uh, the Permian Basin hasn't declined as aggressively as many think. I think because you have some of these wells, these that are aging over time or are just going to continue to increase natural gas. You're not necessarily targeting it. You, you actually are seeing a little bit of a bump in certain areas where people are drilling, where we saw Chevron by Noble and some of these where these majors are at that are actually okay now in Southern Reeves that are actually seeing a bit of an uptick in, in being okay to produce this natural gas. One, because they have the capacity on the pipelines in the short term and the pricing and everything sort of works. But we, you had mentioned before in our previous conversations about not being concerned that the Permian has too much gas. And I'm just saying, when you look at the numbers, are you still not concerned that as we continue to ramp up and say the Permian's the only game in town with limited federal land, could we see problems arise in the next six to 12 months if, if Permian activity really ratchets up on the natural gas side? You know, if gas prices were a dollar higher and there was a real incentive to drill for gas. Um, actually, let me step back a little bit. We just did an analysis of Altus Midstream which is uh, Apache's uh, subsidiary entity um, in terms of the Alpine High field. And we discovered something really interesting, which is this barbell outcome where the fundamentals of the business get better if oil prices is really low because that means people are going to go after gas, uh, gas opportunities because associated gas would be down, the price of gas would be higher, you'd go after more gas uh, projects. And then simultaneously, you'd have probably more gas flowing if there was a much higher, say, $60 oil price, mm-hmm. hypothetically speaking. Whereas status quo is sort of the least compelling because you don't have much gas incentive and and their, their existing acreage isn't all that compelling for growth. So there's some interesting scenarios like that. But to get to your, to your, to your question about gas supply, you know, I don't think that there is enough price incentive for people to go the extra mile to capture all the flared gas, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, if there were, I think you'd see commensurate supply come online. Um, you know, one of the reasons that the Permian and uh, the Bakken have seen flaring come down is because, you know, we saw oil prices go down, associated gas production go down, and they just started capturing more of the gas that was outstanding because the infrastructure yep. wasn't saturated. Yep. So, um, I think, you know, unless we see significant more uh, egress capacity of the Permian on the gas side, I'm not worried about the Permian necessarily overwhelming um, the the U.S. gas macro at this point. Okay. I just think in the near term, I mean, the Permian in the near term, what's, I, it's going to have to continue to, it's going to continue to accelerate in activity. One, because yes. the Saudis did give a little bit of a gift to, uh, to, to USA, which the Russians yes. are probably not going to be super pleased about, but the, the recount was rising a few rigs every week, um, going into the end of this yeah, year. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a rig recovery, but to their credit, the producers have not gone no, they haven't. nuts yet. And they, and actually you hear the producers saying that they're not, they're not going great. And I don't think they will go crazy. I don't think the producers are going to go bananas. I think they're going to be reconciling a couple things that it's, Hey, prices are good and we can feel comfortable with. They should be very concerned about what is the regulatory framework. And now that the Senate has, has flipped, um, the, 
the likelihood that we're going to have massive tax increases on oil and gas companies is is rising. I mean, that's relatively significant. And that could be a bigger constraint uh, on these companies than, I mean, it's not going to be prices right now. At this point, it's not going to be prices. So I do think you're going to see you should see an acceleration. If you are in this business, if you're drilling in New Mexico, for the love of Pete, drill and complete your wells. You don't even have to, if you don't want to turn them on production, don't turn them on production, but you should have been drilling, completing them because you're, you still have these low service costs. And I think you can look at the rig map. We are seeing the largest concentration in, Absolutely. in New and, Mexico. So, And it's going to continue. I mean, the more the fear ratchets up, the more the more you're going to see happen there in the short term. I think the reality is that they need to, these companies need to know that they need to frack them. So even if you're not ready to bring them on production, don't bring them on. Wells do pretty well if you complete them and you don't bring them on production. In fact, like historically, they'd even do better because they're sitting and soaking. But they need to complete them because I think that the nuances that could be coming down the pipeline of the studies that the EPA could be doing or all kinds of things could be stuff that really implicate, okay, you have that well drilled, but you may not be able to frack it. And just because you have the permit doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it either. So I think that's really where folks have to realize that drill and complete these wells, we should see an acceleration in New Mexico. And if you look at EAA production data, we dropped a few hundred thousand barrels a day the past month, but that was almost all from the Gulf, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. So New Mexico stayed north of a million barrels per day. Texas ratcheted up massively. I mean, so we've seen actually, you know, coming out um, in the midst of COVID and, and renewed shutdowns, we've seen production really climb. All right. Well, I think we have reached a natural stopping point next week, hopefully next week when we uh, when we do our new version. I, I'm I hopefully I'll be able to do that with my new Innovex jacket on, uh, which wasn't made from a, a North Face product. So we'll see about that. Uh, with that, I'm going to sign off. This is Ethan Bellamy. I'm a co-host of the Petra Nerds podcast. It's been a pleasure today, Tricia. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ethan. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening.